the progressive ideology tends to be about enfranchisement, more voices at the table, different sorts of diversity, racial, ethnic, gender, all that sort of thing, right? Well, in this instance, you've got a group of American progressives who want to make a decision with no input from black people in Africa. It's its own, it's almost its own form of colonialism, isn't it? And you kind of this new version of, hey, we're, we're okay with Africa having a voice and a vote if they agree with us. But if they don't, we want you out of the question. We, we want to make this decision ourselves. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologians podcast. Today on the show, we have part one of our conversation with Dr. Matt O'Reilly, who is the pastor at Hope Hall United Methodist Church in Alabama. We talk with Matt about the recent conversations and the votes that took place at the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, specifically having to do with gay marriage in the United Methodist Church, as well as gay and lesbian ordinations to ministry within the United Methodist Church. It's a really interesting conversation on a super important as well as complex topic. So let's get right into our discussion with Matt on the United Methodist Church, its present and its future. Well, I am delighted to have my uh, friend and fellow Center for Pastor Theologians uh, uh, member, Matt O'Reilly, Dr. Matt O'Reilly on the podcast today. Matt, how are you, man? So good to be with you. I'm doing well. Good to hear your voice. Good, good. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the show today. And we have a lot, there's a lot we could talk about. It would be fun. We'll have to have you back uh, again just to talk life and ministry and theology uh, more broadly. But today we want to discuss the recent goings on in the United Methodist Church. You are a United Methodist pastor. You're a pastor, theologian, and a United Methodist. We want to talk about the recent special called session of the General Conference where Matt, is it fair to say they did something, the United Methodist Church did something that is not normal for mainline Protestant denominations as, as, an, as an outside observer where they maintained a traditional stance on marriage and human sexuality? That seems to not be the norm among mainline Protestant denominations. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. In fact, some are even saying it's historic because of that. Um, you know, every, every mainline Protestant denomination, whether it's the Presbyterians, uh, Episcopalians, Lutherans, who have faced challenges to historic and biblical standards of sexuality, uh, all of them have succumbed to that pressure in one way or or another. United Methodist Church is the first to hold the line. And so in in that sense, it's unique and uh, and perhaps even historic. Unprecedented in many ways. I mean, that's just amazing. That's amazing. that's right. Let's come back to it in just a second, and and when we do, I want to have you give our listeners a bit of context. Some of our listeners will be familiar with the situation. Some of them won't be, so I want to have you just provide a little bit of context. But firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, your your theological background, educational background. Uh, as I said, you are a United Methodist minister, so this is very pertinent to you and personal to you in your own denominational setting. But set the give us a little bit of context on your life and your story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, uh, as you said, a United Methodist pastor. Uh, I've been in that role for 15 or so years. Um, became United Methodist as a child when I was 10 years old. Um, mm. And found the Lord, really, I think, led our family into that after a, 
my dad passed away at age 10. Uh, the Methodists kind of took care of us and really mm. wrapped their arms around a, a, a young family, a um, widow and orphan kind of thing. Wow. Uh, the pastor of that church, a guy named Walter Albritton, became like a father to me and wow. uh, really cultivated me and nurtured me and um, cared for me in in some special ways. And I'm grateful for that, immensely grateful for that. And over time, I began to develop a sense of the Lord's call into uh, vocational ministry. Uh, I, I think I, for a long time, had a sense that that may not be kind of the typical vocational ministry. I didn't, I wouldn't, it would be some time before I articulated that in terms of the pastor theologian role. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what I was sensing um, even before I had that that language category. Yeah. Um, and so when I got into seminary, Asbury Theological Seminary, um, I kind of began seeing some scholars who lived in both worlds, the church and the academy. Uh, and, and they saw their scholarship as a real service to the church and in some ways a pushback to the academy. Um, and, and I began to think, you know, that if I could find a way to live in both worlds, that's what I'd really like to do. Mm. And I think we need pastors who can do that. Um, and then somewhere along the way, um, came across the, what was then called, if I remember correctly, the Society for the Advancement <laughs> of Ecclesial Theology. Char charmingly uh, named. <laughs> And um, Gerald and I had some interaction long before I became a fellow. Uh, but, but when I got into my PhD, I knew it was time then to really uh, settle in with the Center for Pastor Theologians. And uh, I, f I find the language of ecclesial theology, uh, where you have pastors who are acting as theological shepherds to the church, uh, that's, that's really helpful language, uh, yeah. I think, for articulating what we're, what we're up to and what we'd like to do. And uh, it's language that I've embraced and uh, am grateful for. And so that's, that's kind of how um, my vocational life is fleshed out. Uh, the day-to-day -day work as a pastor, obviously, is very demanding. You guys know that. It requires a lot of time and energy. Uh, but in that, I try to build, um, I'm not sure if rhythm is the right word. I, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, time for research and writing and, uh, and those kinds of things as well. The CPT has been spectacular for yeah, um, kind of creating some accountability along those lines and, and also opportunities. So it's, uh, it's been great. That's great. That's great. Tell us then about, give us just the facts on the specially called general conference that happened at the end of February. Met for a couple right. of days, Matt, is that right? Just kind of lay out the facts of the, the meeting Yep. and the upshot of it, and then we can kind of get into some of the meaning, implications, significance of all of it. And real quick, maybe before you do, my understanding, again, as an outside observer of this, is that this is something that was brewing in the UMC for sure. months, if not years. So maybe you could give a little context on kind of you yeah. know past decade trends or something like that, if, if you think that's helpful. No, I think it is. That's right. Um, so you, you can't, there's a story. It, mm. It's one chapter in a longer story. Uh, that brought us to the place where we are. So the United Methodist Church was formed in 1968 uh, as a merger between the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren. And almost from the start, there was a debate over matters related to sexuality. Uh, I think in 1972, some the language about um, practice of homosexuality as, as incompatible with Christian teaching was inserted into the, our book of discipline. Um, 
I think that's the general conference on that one. And, and from there, um, every four years, there's been a debate over whether to retain or do away with that language. Is that and, right, Matt? All the way from all the way from the beginning of the denomination yeah, it's really, in 1968. We, I didn't our, realize our, that. Our entire ecclesial history, it, which isn't terribly long, you know, 50, 60 yes. years, um, has been marked by has, has been characterized by this debate. And wow. may I ask Matt, just drill down just for a second on that. What is it about Methodism then, or the denomination kind of theological sensibilities that has had this as a forefront issue for all that yeah. time? Well, I don't know that it's Methodism in particular. I think it has more to do with, you know, Methodism, Methodism, and, and I'm not a Methodist historian, so I'll say this, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, think about, think about 1968, 1972, you've got a denomination yeah. that's, that's birthed in some ways, um, theological liberalism is in its almost kind of a climactic heyday yes. before it began to kind of fall apart. And, and you've also got this kind of sexual revolution thing yeah. happening at the same time. So I think there were some cultural pieces there mm-hmm. that really um, brought those questions and debates into 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 the life of the church as well. How, how that played out in history yeah. in detail, I, I'm not qualified to say to, but I think those are some of the pieces yeah. uh, that were in play there. And so the debate continued. Uh, every four years, general conference meets regularly. Um, delegates come from all over the world, and it is a global denomination. So mm. uh, the African church has significant representation. Um, the Philippines, different parts of Europe, Russia. Mm. Um, that conflict was brewing and really becoming increasingly intense over the last couple of yeah. decades. Until 2016, um, there was there was a move by and in 2016 general conference you know all the all the signs were there that the folks on the orthodox conservative traditional side would again you know have the votes to to hold the line and and there were some moves to create what they called a commission on a way forward and uh, the general conference asked the bishops to do some leading and the bishops proposed that we had create this this task force commission uh, to find you know a pathway to lead us through the conflict and out the other side. And so they formed this commission, and they they didn't take any more votes on the questions. And kind of some folks said, "Hey, we're kicking the can down the road." And I get <laughs> yes. when in yeah. doubt, form a committee, Matt. Is that right? The idea? Right. <laughs> and and I, I'm I'm inclined to say, "Hey, we've argued about this for decades." Do we really expect a commission to figure it out in the next, you know, two years? Um, at the same time, there's some value in the process, probably. Yes. Um, of giving people, you know, say, hey, we really have tried everything, <laughs> and we've put people around the table, and we've tried to listen, we've tried to have some some dialogue, and here's where we've wound up. And so uh, that commission met uh, a number of times around the world uh, for a couple of years. And they sent some proposals to this special called session of general conference that was there for three three days to deal exclusively with wow. um, questions related to human sexuality and this particular conflict. So typically, a general conference will run almost two weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the first week will be kind of um, legislation in committee, and the second week is the plenary uh, plenary gathering of the delegates to consider what's come through committee. So this was, uh, and, and, and many of us were not optimistic that anything would really happen. 
because oh, okay. you know it takes one 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 fellow remarked, you know, it typically takes three days to figure out the rules by which we'll conduct the general conference. Yes, and here you want us to solve a decades-old problem in three days. So, you know. There were questions about how how efficient it would be in those kinds of things. And there were there were plans that were on the table that were to be voted on. That's Is right. Is that right, Matt? That, it wasn't right. generated at the gathering. It was some things that had already been generated. And no, the commission right? the commission on a way forward sent the plans to the to the conference to the bishops. And there, were a and pair, the, there were a pair of plans. There so were really two plans. Three, there were three, but only two of them, I think, were really considered to, to be able to get much traction. Okay. Um, and those two, basically the way it works is the commission comes up with the plans. Uh, they send those to the Council of Bishops, and then the Council of Bishops recommend a plan. Um, the two plans that got the most attention were uh, the uh, regrettably named One Church Plan. Yes. Um, I'll say why that's regrettable in a minute. And then a, a traditional plan with some heightened uh, accountability measures. So you've got these two plans. Uh, the one church plan, uh, to summarize it briefly, would say we're aiming at a compromise to keep people of, of different ideological persuasions in the same denomination. And so, you know, the, the, the case was made that that compromise could be found in letting uh, the different groups practice as they see fit. And so, so for now, uh, the United Methodist Church has now and historically has defined marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Uh, the One Church Plan said, let's change that to two persons. Um, and that will, without sort of affirming anything, that just sort of opens up the definition of marriage so that uh, progress, progressive or theologically liberal clergy can perform same-sex unions, um, but traditionally-minded folks don't have to. And so you can kind of you know, I, I would jokingly sometimes say it's the everyone does what's right in their own mind plan. Right. Uh, because you can kind of, uh, you know, you, you could have one United Methodist Church in the city performing same-sex unions and another one that would not. Uh, at the same time, it would free local churches uh, to host and hold same-sex unions in their buildings and on their property, which currently is um, is prohibited. And it would free uh, boards of ministry, which is the, uh, the body that oversees the ordination process, um, to recommend candidates for ministry and ordination who were, um, the, 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 the language in the discipline is self-avowed practicing homosexual. Um, so right now a person who's a self-avowed practicing homosexual cannot be, uh, ordained as a pastor or as a member of the clergy or appointed as a pastor to United Methodist churches. So, so the, the one church plan says, hey, we can be one church by making sexuality uh, kind of one of those lower tier matters yes. yeah. that you don't divide over um, and everyone can just kind of do what they want to do and let's just move on. Um, the traditional plan, alternatively, um, retained all of the current language about uh, same-sex practices being incompatible with Christian teaching and then sought to add accountability measures because there are, are, are a growing number of folks who are flouting, flouting the expectation and really the, the standards of the Book of Discipline. And so the traditional plan um, aimed to uh, create some mandatory penalties for folks who would perform same-sex unions um, it wanted to create 
kind of a global oversight committee for the bishops. Uh, that that did not actually happen. Uh, it was considered unconstitutional by our judicial council, kind of the Methodist Supreme Court. Um, they uh, they changed the just resolution process in some ways. Uh, we can get into the details more of that in a little bit if you want to. But the the, the in brief, it, it said we're going to keep things the way they are, and we're going to try to sharpen up our accountability so that folks cannot disregard our standards so easily yeah. without consequence. So those are the two plans there that, uh, that, that, that the General Conference had in front of them that, that were most likely to get anywhere close to passing. Hey, everybody. Just a quick plug for our annual Theology Conference, which we are hosting right outside Chicago this coming October, the 14th to the 16th. The Pastor Theologians Conference hosted by the CPT is a really unique event where we bring together pastors as well as academic theologians, scientists, and other ministry professionals to talk about topics that are especially relevant to the needs and concerns of ministry in the local church. This year, uh, our topic for the conference is a Christian vision of technology, and we're really looking forward to the conversations we're going to be having about uh, multi-site church, artificial intelligence, social media, uh, data privacy, all sorts of things as they relate to human identity and theological formation. So if you're interested, feel free to check out our conference website at cptconference.com, where you can find out more information as well as a list of speakers, and you can register right there on the website as well. All right, let's get right back to our conversation with Pastor Matt O'Reilly on gay marriage and homosexual practice in the United Methodist Church. And um, the traditional plan won out in terms of votes. So it's really striking the way that it played out because um, the Council of Bishops, uh, and, and we were told we don't see bishop, the Council of Bishops votes, uh, those are not made public, but we were told a majority of the Council of Bishops were in favor of the one church plan. Yeah. Um, now, some folks have said it was a significant majority. Other folks have said it was a very slim majority. Again, we don't know the actual numbers. Um, so a lot of the bishops, bishops were in favor of the one church plan, but not all of them, apparently. Uh, so you've got that significant, you know, an, an immense amount of money, energy, and influence were put into influencing the delegates to general conference to voting for the one church plan. On the first day of general conference, before they began considering anything at all, they had 75 or so, 74 pieces of legislation to consider. The delegates were given the opportunity to vote on their priorities. And, mm. uh, and, and so it would basically, they, they just went through each piece of legislation and said, do you think this is a priority, yes or no? And then ranked them by percentages wow. of yeses. And the one church plan didn't make... Uh, 50 percent of the vote, even as a, a talking point priority. Wow! Right. So you've got how did that happen? Well, well, it shows you how out of step the bishops are with the global church. Wow! Um, and, and that that's my point. Wait, is, but is there, not, is there not bishop representation from the global church? No, the bishops it's not have just bishops from North America. No, well, that's right. So here's the thing. So bishops have no no. They preside over general conference, but they don't have a vote. Um. And so the delegates are elected from all over the world in proportion to local membership. Right? So there are a significant number of African delegates that come uh, from 
from around the world, the Philippines, uh, different parts of Europe. And then you have the North American delegations as well. And those are uh, organized regionally. So um, annual conferences in the Southeast are tend to elect more uh, conservative evangelical kind of delegates, uh, though not always. And then, you know, Texas tends to be a more conservative area. The western part of the country is going to send more uh, theologically progressive delegations, uh, by and large. Obviously, those are generalizations. Um, but so so the delegates, the 864 delegates who are actually voting members of the general conference, um, only 48%, if I recall, said the one church plan is a priority for the conversation, right? So huh. in my mind... And, many, and I'm not the only one who said, who said this, it, it, it could be understood as a vote of no confidence in our Episcopal leadership. When you have a majority of the bishops say, here's the plan we think has the best chance of holding the church together, and then uh, 48%, only 40, not even half the, the delegates who get to say what they want to do, not even half of them think it's uh-huh. worth talking about. Right? Not whether, we, whether or not we should do it, it's not even worth That's talking amazing. about. All right. So, so it really is striking that not even half the delegates thought it was worth conversation. Um, so that happened on day one. On day two, the uh, typically you would have lots of committees, but since there's only the way, one day, topic, day one, day one debrief for the bishops must have been interesting. Yeah, it was. It was not a. It was not a good weekend for the or a good good season for the bishops. Wow. Um, but but even still, I mean, I think a lot of folks saw the writing on the wall at that point. However, um, there were two more days of politicking and mm. Robert's rules of order to, to play out all of this. So on day two, the entire uh, body functioned as one massive committee, right? Because everything's got to go through committee before it gets to the plenary session. And since there's only one topic, no only need one committee. And uh, so the committee um, selected, uh, you know, voted in favor of the traditional plan and did not pass the one church plan. And then on the third day, the one church plan was brought in as a minority report. And so we got one more kind of attempt to pass. And again, it it failed as it had uh, the day before in committee, uh, which was no surprise because the committee and the plenary were the same people in this instance. Um, But, but the point is on three different days, it was brought up and each time it was soundly rejected. Um, Which, which, which is again, quite striking. And, that that's important uh, because it points to it's a good reminder that the United Methodist connection is a global we're, mm. we're, we're a global church. That's the difference. If you were to say, what's the difference between all of the other mainline denominations who've had this conflict and have not been able to hold the line? And what's the difference between them and the United Methodist Church? The difference is uh, we are a global denomination and that the global church has uh, has a voice and a vote in wow. these conflicts. Right? So uh, the African, yeah, it really is. United Methodism is exploding in Africa. Um, and so you bring these delegates in from, from all over the world. And it's a reminder that, and this is, this is, is quite striking, North America, um, you know, we kind of live in a silo. Uh, mm, yeah. But and we think that you know everybody should think you know, think the way we think, and we just sort of yep. 
export our ideologies. Yes. Um, but when it comes to sexuality, the rest of the world doesn't agree with North America, by yeah. and large. I mean, the, the sort of liberalizing and progressive tendencies in American politics are not reflective of the globe in, when it comes to the church. Uh, it's, it, there was an article uh, on Christianity Today's website a couple years ago. I think Mark Galley wrote it. Uh, it was kind of a, hey, breaking news, two billion Christians agree on marriage and sexuality, mm. <laughs> that kind of thing, <laughs> which is a helpful reminder <laughs> that that uh, if you really do kind of zoom out and look at the global church, you know, with kind of a broad ecumenical, a generous ecumenical lens, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants yeah. in its many, uh, many manifestations, North America, South America, a- Africa, Asia, Russia, if you really kind of zoom out and take the big picture, it's the folks who are trying to change the definition of marriage represent a very, 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 very small minority of people. Mm. Uh, And this general conference was a good reminder of that. That's amazing. Yeah. And just in terms of how that plays out specifically in, in the UMC, I read somewhere, you were kind of talking about how Methodism is exploding in Africa mm-hmm. and like many mainline denominations uh, shrinking really in North America. Yeah, it is. Um, I think I read that this could be wrong, but I read that every year roughly the UMC is losing about a hundred thousand members in, that- in the, in the United States. And then in Africa every year it's gaining 300,000. Right. So, so that's a 400,000 member switch, as it right. were, from yep. North America to Africa just Correct. every year. Yeah, that's right. So the, the the UMC in North America is on the decline and has been, I think, almost since the beginning in 1968. But the global denomination is growing yeah. uh, significantly. And uh, and it's growing because growth in other parts of the world are the growth is 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 at a, a more accelerated rate than the decline in North America. Yeah, that's right. So, Matt, an observation. I mean, how do the the progressives and the theological liberals within the UMC? No doubt, they're heartbroken over this decision. Yes, right. I mean, th- this right. is an important feature of Methodism, as they understand it. This is a social justice issue, no doubt. So on and so forth. Sure. Um, they are there. Are there t- tensions within that part of the UMC? Um, to want to celebrate on the one hand the globalization of Methodism and then on the other hand to be like, wait a minute, this this is really throwing a monkey wrench in the system now. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really striking as far as this, and I don't, want, I don't want the tone of this to sound, you know, particularly harsh or, or yes. unfair, but, but you've got, You've got a group of folk, you know, the, the progressive ideology tends to be about enfranchisement, more voices at the table. Those, those kind of tend to be the standard yes. standard lines in the ideology. Yes. And in this instance— Inclusion. I mean, inclusion. Yeah, inclusion, right? Yes. Different sorts of diversity, racial, ethnic, you know, uh, gender, all that sort of thing, right? Well, in this instance— You've got a group of American progressives who want to make a decision with no input from black people in Africa. Mm, mm. 
I was right. going to ask you, Matt. It, it's so on this, ironic, can, can, can you elaborate? A little? I was going to ask you about the racial dynamic here. Yeah, not just geographic, but the right. geographies attached to race and how that also plays out. So, so yeah. keep going. It, <laughs> keep it's, going it, again, and I want to be I want to be kind of careful, but but I think these things need to be said. You know, it it is it's. <clears throat> It's its own. It's almost its own form of colonialism, isn't yep. it? And you kind of this new version of, hey, you know, ideological colonialism. Yeah, we're we're okay with Africa having a voice and a vote if they agree with us, but if they don't, we want you out of the question. We we want to make this decision ourselves. And you you constantly hear things like, well, if if North America got to make the decision without global input, then uh, then we would we would have changed our position a long time ago. Um, but the the thing about that is it's inconsistent with the general kind of progressive agenda that focuses on globalization and diversity, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it really is showing, I think, the incoherence of progressivism, mm. uh, because it only it we're you know it's only progressive if you agree with us, kind yes. of thing. and and yes. uh, we only want your voice. If your voice sounds like our voice, which means they're not really interested in diversity, um, they're interested in their agenda. Yeah. But it's not just an issue of the South being more conservative on this than the North globally. It's also right. that, isn't it? Pews are more conservative than pulpits in the UMC. Is that also true? Yeah, that's a major piece. That's right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'll have part two of our conversation with Dr. Matt O'Reilly on gay marriage, homosexual practice in the United Methodist Church next week. So be sure to tune in for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.